Okay, it's just sick how great some of these musicians are that have been on the podcast lately, folks. Coming at you with another one today. No Guitar is Safe podcast, the podcast where players plug in. Sounds like a tagline, I guess, but I just kind of made that up. But it's true, today we're going to plug in with another amazing player, Justin Meldell Johnson, a.k.a., in fact, better known as JMJ, the great producer, bassist. That's right, he plays bass. We haven't had a bass player on since Billy Sheehan way back 71 episodes ago on episode 5, the great bass player Billy Sheehan. Man, you have so much to learn today from Justin. He is amazing. JMJ has produced, gosh, Jimmy Eat World, which we're listening to right now. This is a song called Pass the Baby. Epic recording. Wow. And he's also done a bunch of stuff with like Paramore, we'll get into that, Wolf Alice, Ravenettes, Metric, M83. He even corralled Steve Vai onto an M83 song. Steve Vai in a total kind of pop setting. That is really cool. You're going to hear that. And my gosh, as a musician, it's just crazy. All the gigs JMJ has held as a bass player, he's worked with, collaborated with, man, Dixie Chicks, Kid Rock, They Might Be Giants, Pink, Tori Amos, Black Eyed Peas, Macy Gray. Nine Inch Nails, and of course, Beck. I love that he joined Air for their Moon Safari tour and also recorded with them. That was a great album. When we open the show today, we're going to be playing one of my favorite Air songs that Justin probably played a million times. It's called La Femme d'Argent, if I even have any clue how to speak French, but wow, what a cool tune that is. Super mellow. We'll open with that. Justin is playing his new artist series jmj road worn mustang bass this thing is beautiful beautiful finish it's one of those things you just want one when you see it and it sounds great he's running it through a fender rumble 40 which you're going to be surprised also sounds great you're hearing a mix of a of the room mic and the direct signal from the fender rumble 40. the bass of course the artist series jmj mustang is available at Fender dealers everywhere, and of course at Fender.com. I'm just playing a Fender Telecaster through. What am I playing through? Playing through the Boss Katana Katana 50 Combo, which I love throwing into my trunk because it does so much and it weighs so little. All right, too much talking, not enough rocking. Let's go find out what it means to throw down a great groove, to produce a great record, to lead a great band, to survive a great tour all these things. My name is Jude Gold. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you enjoy the show, don't be shy. A good review on iTunes helps boost the podcast. And tell your friends. I can't believe how many people write in and say, man, I discovered your podcast. I've binged and listened to all 76 previous episodes. Give me a new one right away. I promise you'll keep on coming. So thanks for listening. My name is Jude Gold. Let's go over to Justin's beautiful home studio in the los angeles area we're not a knob is out of place i love the room that we're about to hang out in and i'll post a couple pictures of it on twitter jude underscore gold is my handle or on the no guitar safe facebook page thanks again to zoom recorders and also to you for listening keep it alive till you're at least 95 let's fire up the copter
I think that you played on the Moon Safari tour for the band Air. I did, yeah. Which Moon Safari is one of my favorite albums of all time. Oh man, that's great. I I really like that album too. I can't believe you got to jam that out on the road. That's a Jamming that with you, you sound so hey, good. Hey man, thanks. We aren't even aren't warmed up yet. Maybe down the road. <laughs> wow man, thanks. I don't even think I quite got the guitar in tune for that. But you know, oh, same one. here. Boy, boy, boy. Oopsie. Ah oh, well. Yeah, it's good. Close though. enough for rock and roll. And that was close really enough for fresh. Super rock and roll. inspiring. Now, I call that album "Hangover Helper." <laughs> it's just, it's I can so dig that. mellow. It's like it's, it's mellow. It's, it's such good. a chill record. It's good. It also has that like kind of innocent quality to it. It's very na- naive and innocent sounding. It's cool. And I remember, though, it wasn't so innocent because um, when we put together that tour, the band hadn't ever played live before. And the ambition was to recreate it without like anything tracked or sampled. Right. Like all played by human hands. And so essentially, it was me on bass, Brian Reitzel on drums. Brian is a, is a great drummer and film composer and music supervisor he does all the Sofia Coppola films and and I've worked with him a bunch since air the rhythm section and then four people playing keyboards and I remember at one point during rehearsal having a look and we counted it up and there was about 25 different keyboards on stage all (laughs) presumably working supposed to work at the same time really tough to do but it ended up being okay, but it but it was a lot of panic for these guys who, you know, were real mellow when they started, but then when they realized, wow, we're going on tour and our album's like a hit and we need to like be, be on point. And, yeah. and it was, 
I don't know. I don't think any bands would do that anymore. It was really expensive. And, you know, you had like two Rhodes, two ARP 2600s, two, um, three, two or three Korg MS-20s. Like, it was just like, you know, super crazy. Moog here, Moog there. It's just like keyboards littering the stage, all plugged in haphazardly and like, you know, falling apart. It was nuts. And long ass sound checks. Such <laughs> long sound checks. Oh my God. It was so crazy. I, it was that, that was that one of those moments when I realized, oh yeah, I'm, I'm the bass player. Everything's okay. Yeah. You know, I got two, two or three pedals on the ground and a simple amp and I'm just like, chill. Two basses, one's a hollow body kind of for the air 60 sound and one's like a P bass and that's all I had done. You know what I mean? Yeah. Easy. So yeah. Those, yeah. Those, I've been on those kind of checks. I was on with a great DJ, Miguel Miggs, and one person in the band was running software okay through the he was controlling the laptop part of things but it was still a live band with a full musicianship like uh, bass drums and singers and, and right at like a sound check it turned out his one of his key pieces of software i won't say which one that wasn't licensed and it somehow had logged onto the internet and the company found out and was like you do not have a license for this so the whole thing stopped we had to purchase the software for like four hundred dollars and then <laughs> get the sound check running again <sighs> It's ambitious to do that kind of stuff, but it it's is. really cool. Yeah, yeah. The the whole mix of uh, electronic music and 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 organic instruments is is something that's been pursued obviously since at least the seventies. But it, it no one's ever really fully gotten it right I know. ever. And and everyone tries and everyone does great attempts. But you know the deal. Like oh, yeah. I, it, like because I'm also a music director and I help put together people's tours and I've been through this. And there's always something to be compromised. Either right. the elastic feel of a real band, or uh, like the backing tracks or the samples or whatever sounding too disembodied from the band, or things failing, or you know the deal. I mean, you've yeah. you've been there. It's 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 really yeah, it is like you're really gambling every time you embark upon that that task. Remind me who you've done some MDing for. Oh, I have, man, your, your rap shop. sheet is so huge. I, I have actually. Look at this piece of paper. This is like Jesus. minor cliff's notes. Yeah. I, I'm glad you called a rap sheet. It's it's basically, yes, guilty as charged. <laughs> you know, I, I might as well be called a rap sheet. Rather I mean, than you've CD. been a musician with like on tours and on, on albums. You've recorded with Air, Beck, tons of stuff with Beck on all the big records pretty much. Mm-hmm. Jason Mraz, Garbage, Kid Rock, Pink, Nika Costa. I love her. That's super funky. Dixie Chicks. They might be giants. This is crazy. Black Eyed Peas, Courtney Love, Michelle Branch, Tori Amos. That's just a small amount. I think those are all huh. correct. Yeah, <laughs> uh, those are those are definitely all correct. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. a robot. So yeah. Macy Gray. Yeah. And tell me about like just jump into the top job one can have in this sort of business, which is MDing, which you've done a lot. Of. What's like? What are some of the biggest challenges and thrills? What are the rewards and and challenges of that position? I think one of the biggest rewards is getting a group of people together who who feel really nervous about getting from point a which is you've auditioned for a a a gig you've got the gig and point b being we've got successful gigs under our belt and we sound like a unit right and between that is a huge gulf and especially for people who have never really been on a, a, a substantial tour before navigating that gulf is 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 tricky and and there's no manual for it uh and there's a lot of pitfalls there's a lot of pitfalls there's a lot of you know pitfalls when it comes to even putting your gear together and the pitfalls usually lie in the realm of having too much gear um and certainly not the right gear and then there's pitfalls in terms of under rehearsing there's pitfalls in terms of over rehearsing there's problems when it comes to uh, knowing a lot about the the 
how would you say like the 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 protocol or the decorum when it comes to things like discussing your salary and and when when to do that when not to do it and and what kind of conversations to have with your bandmates versus the management or versus you know or what what to bring up to the the artist or not to bring up to the artist i mean i'm sure you have some 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 uh acumen in this area yourself Oh yeah, well thank you. I mean, yeah, I mean I've definitely done some of that in MDing yeah. and composing and being like scoring musicals and this right. kind of stuff where you're you've got pro musicians and people who've never sang professionally before who are kind of up there right. as actors and yeah, you learn a ton of it. What what's been the most thrilling hmm. MD or what's been one of the thrilling MD jobs that you've had? Probably helping Beck put together the Midnight Vultures tour circa 99, 2000 right. era, um, just because it was a big band. There was horns and a DJ and backup singers and everyone's playing multiple things. And um, there's tracks, there's samples, everyone's singing backgrounds. And, you know, there's 11 people on stage and super ambitious, very almost like a like a psychotic um, twisted Vegas review meets like a punk band. It, it, it was very, very ambitious. And I'm actually very proud of it because we pulled it off. And, and I've seen some of those shows lately. Like there's, there's footage now from two nights at Budokan that we did at that, on, on that tour. And that, that footage was missing for years. And now it's like up on YouTube or something. And it's goofy as hell, but it, it's actually cool to see like this band shredding full tilt like everybody's gelled and everyone feels like they're on the same mission so so that's kind of what i was getting at before is is the thing of how do you get how do you get people to agree on a set of goals for an ensemble and having that jive with what they want for themselves i mean you know when you start out as a musician who's hired and you're on tour you're thinking about okay so wow i'm getting paid maybe more than i ever have or and i I'm going to nail this and it's actually going to be a stepping stone to something else. And you're thinking about all these things naturally because it's new and you're learning about all the, the, I guess the benefits or the, the, the incredible like upside to being a musician on the road. But the, the fact of the matter is as time goes on, I'm finding that people quickly learn that there's much more to it. And a lot of it has to do with, more high-minded concepts like being excellent and being a band that even though you're not a band you feel and sound like a band and having those aspirations was was something that people like didn't necessarily have their eyes on as much back in the day i mean there are really notable exceptions like if you look for instance at let me give you a really good example like joni mitchell in the 70s had a band that was insane right it was basically like part of weather report pat metheny and like yeah. some other people and it was like robin ford did that for a while. robin ford did that for a while jocko pastorius and, and of course jocko on bass so you know if you look at any footage from that tour it will blow your mind and that's a yeah. band that's a band who somehow either by natural osmosis or by someone's force of will or by accident came became a band and it doesn't matter that there's hired guns in that band. It becomes completely invisible, that yeah. aspect of it. Sometimes I think that's a jazz thing. I mean, you get some really ace players. They play so much. Jazz players, all they do is play. They're that's shedding. a really good point. It's almost like they don't have time to think about politics or how much I'm getting paid or what's my next gig or 
I'm going to be able to do my solo album after this or like any of that nonsense. Like they're just thinking about like, Hey, we're going to be the baddest motherfuckers alive right now. And there's a lot of improvisation is listening to you. So they're yeah. good listeners. And either. if they're, if you know, if they've been, if they have it, like for instance, if you think about that band, if you cast your mind back to that, all those guys had a decade plus of incredible experience recording and performing in jazz circumstances that, are, that involve a type of listening that I can only pretend to be able to, to emulate. Like that's, that's, that's a, that's musicianship of a very high order that has a lot to do with like skill and even more to do with, as you say, listening. And so that's like, just going back to the MD thing for a second, yeah. that's something I'm always, or had been when I was doing it more aspiring to achieve is, is how to get people to, to not freak out about things like their headphone mix and, and rely more on their, the concept of their role in an ensemble, you know? And that's, that's a, a it was a big aspiration of mine. I'm, I'm very group oriented. I'm very like, army like we're in the army together or we're in the submarine together and that sense of esprit de corps is the thing that actually gives me the most satisfaction in music that's why i like producing bands for instance so when i'm MDing, i'm always shooting for like what can we do to like get this person who's on that side of the stage to gel with and listen to this person 50 feet away from them like how do you get the like lines of communication and the the more telepathic side of it how do you get that going and how do you do it fast because yeah. hey we're going on the road in two weeks you know so exactly. it's it's a task for sure i guess experience is the main way to get better at that whether you're the musician or the md yeah yeah and instilling that in people is, is not is not an easy task yeah. again especially if it's like their first rodeo plus you're at, a bass you know, player i mean we all know bass players are always more chill than other <laughs> instrumentalists but are they well i'm kind of generalizing but also, to be a bass player and a producer, I find a lot of producers, successful ones such as yourself, are pretty good with working with people and can roll with things. And, huh. and you know, it's you can't be too much of a dick. I mean, there's yeah, different no, I, schools. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I think you, you, you're hitting on a good point because one thing I always like to think of is like, well, how did I stumble into record producing after being a sideman and band guy and MD and bass player for so long? That's exactly what uh, I want to know because oh. you are a... There's different kinds of heroes that we musicians have. There's the hero who starts a band in high school and like you two or whatever and create this incredible thing and become yeah. rock stars and sell yeah. billions of records. Yeah. There's also heroes of people who create amazing careers for like us working musicians. And especially in 2018 where you just have to do so many different things to survive, you are the poster boy, the renaissance man as far as I mean you do so many different things, playing music, sideman, producing MDing, um hmm. songwriting have the studio we're in is fantastic well, so thanks, you, the way that you've built this career is uh stunning to those of us who are in the business i think and i'd love to know how you did that but first tell me about this bass in your hand what are you holding there okay this is um gosh it's kind of a long name i don't know how maybe i'm going to get this wrong but it's the, it's the fender jmj road worn mustang bass that's F close or, enough. Or the Fender Road Worn JMJ Signature Mustang Bass. I don't know. You don't and have of to get exactly right. You're the talent. Okay, okay. I'm not supposed to get but it right. Yes, the JMJ Mustang. Okay, sure. Let's make it easy. And and by the way, it wasn't my fault that like I'm JMJ. Like that's just people not being able to deal with my name for 30 years yeah. and having to shorten it. So like I don't go around saying like, "Hi, nice to meet you. I'm JMJ." <laughs> just so we're clear. 
Do your friends call you JMJ or they call you Justin or they call me both. But but I think it's it's funny. It's almost like the personal life, or rather the business moniker of JMJ has bled into my personal life. I certainly right. my wife doesn't call me JMJ. My my family doesn't call me JMJ. And if they did, I think I would probably say like we're done. I'm retiring. You know. But anyway, yeah. This is this is the this is the base. And um, it's like you have flat wound strings on there. It it does. It has flat wound strings and um, Fender medium scale flats. And uh, medium scale, by the way, it's a short scale bass, right? It's somewhere around 30 inches, but it's through body strung. So because of that, they needed the extra length on the string. You can't get use short scale strings. You have to use medium scale strings to get that all the way through. Um, So yeah, it's got flat wound strings. It's why do bass in. players use flat one? I mean, is that like a yeah. is that like a James Jamerson thing? For sure. Is, is that the main inspiration for it? I know Carole, the back in Carole the day. Carol King, Jamerson, Bob Babbitt, any of the Wrecking Crew, uh, anyone from the Motown days, anyone from the Muscle Shoals days. And why uh, are you Dunn. using them now in this in this well ninety six kilohertz age? <laughs> interesting. You should ask. It's like it's a funny thing. Like you go, well, why do you want to? Why wouldn't you just want to like process the bass later rather than it being dark out of the gate? The fact of the matter is flat wound strings on a bass like this especially like a short scale instrument they don't necessarily sound dark they just have a different set of harmonics above the fundamental of of, the pitch of the note so in other words it's not they're not always super dark they they actually present the mid-range for instance quite differently and they present the low end a little differently and it has to do with if you look at it like say on a spectrum analyzer or an oscilloscope it's just the whole spectrum is different not just the top and that's a bit of a misnomer, right. or, or rather a misinterpretation of, of flat ones. So I got it plugged in here. So for instance, so here's the bass with the tone wide open. It's definitely like, sure vintage year older or whatever but the thing is is like it's just a taste it's just a subjective taste thing i i think that there was always this notion that like oh yeah flat wounds those are for like r&b and soul guys and whatever and like like super vintage head head record collector head type guys and then round wounds are for or maybe now people think of flat wounds as like only for hipsters or whatever and and then they go round wounds are like jazz rock anything else anything modern whatever and now that it's cross-pollinated so much over the years that there's less prejudice about that and and people have broadened their minds in terms of like well now i have a bass that's a hollow body with with flats and i've got a p bass or j bass with rounds and i use them both equally during my gig you're right it sounds and, so clear too like i wouldn't yeah it, it is actually like clear. a beautiful p bass or something But, you know, it's cool to see bass players picking up this bass going, oh, yeah, this is just a different tonality. This is just a different arrow, you know, for my quiver. It's not like this is relegated to, like, you know, vintage-loving hipster, like, kids who, like, you know, only listen to uh, Tame Impala or Beck or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's way broader than that. Because, like, I know dudes that have picked up this bass and like the fact that they can, like, kind of rip on it and play in a kind of punky way like all downstrokes with a pick and get like kind of a different like it's just rolling off some of the zing that you get from like a uh say like a p bass with with round wounds you know 
and it's just like a different character of that, that kind of great. you know so you can do this any which way and then you could like roll off the tone and go like oh yeah it's beautiful like Paul McCartney sound or something <laughs> it's a really cool looking bass too like the the roadborn blue finish is just gorgeous man thanks man yeah it's light blue well it's it's Daphne blue it's called and um, they went through hell trying to mimic the bass that this is based on which by the way is in the other room oh cool yeah so it's what year is the original that it's based 66 on? Oh, which is the first year of the mustang yeah. not right. the not the first year of the mustang guitar i don't think i think it's just the first year of the mustang bass and um you know it's just really been um vindicating because the mustang bass has always been this like not quite as valid stepchild of the other fender basses and um, because it's had a slight stigma of being a student instrument, you know, which is what it started out as. And, and the thing is that people of taste and cape and, and skill over the years started realizing, oh, wait a minute, it's got a sound that I can't get over here. So because of that, Mustangs have made quite a resurgence over the years. And now this thing's like selling great and people seem to dig it and it makes me really happy. I mean, my heroes as, as a bass player, this is, this is, where they went yeah. tina weymouth from talking heads and tom tom club this uh, the Aha. mustang is where she started yeah one and of the great bass lines of all time so funky yeah i never knew that was a mustang bass i don't know if it is right but i didn't know she i didn't know she was a mustang person she was always also known for the uh, hoffner club hollow body she also played a uh, Gibson, uh, Gibson um, Les Paul bass. You got to do the singing though. <laughs> yeah, that's a good tune. Nice. Yeah, man, that's like, you know, Tina for instance for me was iconic because like other bass players of the era such as sting another big influence for me and a guy that i got to know later on who's super cool to me um through your buddy lyle who played with him or no (laughs) because with bass uh sorry um as a bass player i i toured with beck in 2007 and we opened for the police doing stadiums on their reunion incredible and that was insane Standing on the side of the stage watching them play every night. You know, that same DJ that I played with, Miguel Miggs, we did the Virgin Music Festival. And we were on a different stage, but I got to stand on the side of the stage and watch the police. V-Fest, right? V-something? Or whatever. It was in Baltimore? Oh, it was in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I played that one. Yeah. You watched them. And yeah, same thing. I'm watching on the side of the stage. And you're just looking at Sting. You're like, it's like... I know. I remember somebody once said about the great football player Walter Payton. It's like God chiseled himself a running back, and that's when I looked at that's that. That's amazing. Was like God chiseled himself a bass player singer. Yeah, like and <laughs> and there's there's only a couple of prototypes for that. There's Getty. There's him and God. I mean, maybe just a couple more. I can't even think of them right now. But yeah, Sting, uh, like Tina, like even someone like Adam Clayton, like. Um, a lot of the other like post-punk dudes of the era, like um, J.J. Burnell from Stranglers, or like, or of course Peter Hook from Joy Division: New Order, who's one of my all-time favorite bass players. 
probably my number one maybe peter hook um all those dudes had to make a lot with a little either because they were like in a in a small ensemble like a like a trio or whatever or or like in a band that only had one guitar player or they were just making music that had that real sense of economy to it so with talking heads for instance the bass lines are are the total scaffolding holding that whole house together and tina i don't understand how someone creates bass lines that effective with such economy i've never been able to do it like her ever i always overplay i've never been able to think like that i always just never come up with anything as cool like it's you know there's just yeah. there's just the bar is so high with What's someone another like example that. of one of her bass lines that you like her um i mean or dude you, li- you can... here check this out what do you do yeah. with this like how, who who can who can beat this Oh, I know that song. What is that song? Psycho Killer? Which one is that? Psycho Killer. Yeah. And it then, you totally know, works. It, you know, and then he's playing like the like A7 chord over it, you know, like, I can't seem to face up to them. The baseline's chugging along and basically where would the song be without it? It's yeah. one of those situations, you know, I mean, there's myriad examples of very complex bass lines like jamerson lines or mccartney lines or whoever who you know that that are equally as valid i'm just i just marvel at people like that who can do something so with such a simple tool set and and everybody just number one they recognize the song within two seconds and number two it gets their body moving what other barometer is there than those two things that's greatness right there you know great baseline you know so that's the best meme i've seen in a while it says <laughs> what's that bass what is it it says this is a picture of some somebody somebody's hands on an electric bass and it says bass the reason your girlfriend dances dude <laughs> i mean yeah or anyone dances really because yeah. you know i once played bass in a funk band i okay. think it might be more fun than guitar when you're in a band where everything is built around the bass line you're in the center of the groove you know you provide a bridge between any harmonic information and any rhythmic information exactly. and because of that job you can either have tons of fun and be brilliant or you can really blow it tough it's tough and you know the adage of like oh i want to learn an instrument be in a band well eh, you should just pick up bass it's the easiest that's uh, that's just that works for a time and then after a while you realize oh this is like that this is like that um karate kid analogy like 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 um painting the fence or you know or like wax on wax off you know that's yeah. that's that analogy of like well you think that you have all these skills and all this talent and all this technical wherewithal and really that's that's um going to get you to a point and then what you what you really need is all the stuff that you should have maybe learned first which is the that that Tina Weymouth situation of like well I'm I'm the catalyst with which everything happens and I don't really look at my role w- as you know and high and mighty or vain as that i'm just saying like as an admirer of the greatest bass players of all time that's what they're able to pull off that's the truth of the matter and you know so when i see that done so well it's just like magic man and it makes me want to keep aspiring to do it that's the thing it keeps me going 
right? I mean, don't haven't you ever been like listen like got your head around some music that like you didn't think you would like and then someone turned you on to something and there was a guitar player that played something so elegant and so simple and a lot of it was the sonics of it but some of it was just this vibe it was this this x factor that i that you felt you never could do but someone's just laying it out for you like wow that's like an angle i've never looked at music before yeah i mean i'm sure you've felt that way before right absolutely i mean that's why it's so important to still go out and see live music like i'm always seeing cool stuff i was band around town telescopes with a k these guys are doing crazy huh. stuff with guitars and right. echoes and it's great and then yeah sometimes you sit face to face with somebody and they play something and it just changes you forever have you ever had a moment like that where you sat down with somebody and yeah years ago i i um did a tour i was i was playing with beck and as usual and we did a tour opening for neil young up and down the west coast wow and it was a it was like a it was a, a tour where he put together the band. I don't know if he only did this, maybe just this one time. Maybe it, maybe it was the, a one-time deal. But he put together the band that played on Harvest, all the original players. And he toured basically that album. Um, and it was really remarkable and intimate. And I think this was in the very early 2000s. And um, the great Donald Duck Dunn, bass player from the glory days of muscle shoals obviously the blues brothers and mm, just hundreds of brilliant records right um he was a bass player on the tour and he was he was someone i just idolized he sat down with me once and we just had a little bit of a jam and i don't even remember it now it was such a blur but i just remember watching his hands and seeing how funky his tone was with so little effort right um there's a few other dudes like that like you ever are you familiar with a bass player named Rocco Prestia from Tower of Power oh yeah okay so have you noticed how little how little drama there is from his body while he's playing I mean I've haven't I've saw him one time okay yeah you're right that was a while Sick ago bass but player. I've listened to the listen to the million you know we could jam on what is hip right now I know as long as I yeah, right I love, I love him so much but yeah I've never watched him that much so you're saying he has a real economy of it's it's this it's this really like um super economical light touch not flashy yeah. situation and so duck done just kind of blew me away just being able to play something really funky and 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 do it with such ease and such quiet his body was very quiet i'm the opposite of that and so like especially when i'm playing live i i tend to, to overplay first of all and i also tend to um be a total spaz and miss notes and like bang my headstock into the cabinet and or the microphone and you know act a fool yeah. and just be a maniac but that's just what i like to do i i'm not proud of it but it's what i it's what you i know, do it's, it's what i do when the music too. starts and the audience is there i tend to just be insane um but that as uh, quite contrary to my role like for instance as a supportive session musician but i'm i'm yeah, i'm just sides i'm discovering <laughs> okay i guess yeah <laughs> somehow i have to live up to that but the thing is is that i'm really impressed by dudes like that who are able to just play with such simplicity and 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 kill it and i think a lot of it has to do with his his time a lot of these geniuses on bass have this internal time that um doesn't really have any relationship to the cliche of listening to the drummer. I get, let me see if I can put that more clearly. I guess what I'm saying is they have such a, a fluid internal metronome yeah. 
that they they assert the time rather than searching for the time so yeah. so it's something that i've always aspired to i'm always trying to figure out how to be calm and at ease even if i'm playing something really heavy and loud but doing a thing where i'm i'm i'm, I'm feeling like I don't. I don't need other people to tell me what the feel and the time is. I'm. I'm asserting it. I've got it inside yeah. me. Right. It's. It's a tough uh, thing to to do really well. But the masters, they do it with with like. They don't think about it. They don't talk about it. They don't have to demonstrate it. They just play, and they just kill it. You know. Yeah, they just tap in instantly. Yeah, I love that. It's like riding a magic carpet, and that it's it's uh when you see it or when you hear it you know and you you don't know necessarily how they got there i think that's the best description i've ever heard of this thing we're talking about it's like riding a magic carpet that's feels good. that way it's <laughs> it's this thing of like effortless flow you know and and yeah. man like if you listen to like um some of the great soul records of the past there's thousands of example i was just thinking about move on up by curtis mayfield I'm thinking about that, like, just thinking about that record this morning because you got this, like, conga player going crazy and this bass player's just holding it down. He never changes the bass line. And six minutes on, the song is just, it's playing this line, man. He just give a fuck. He's just, like, rocking it. And the horns are going crazy. That's a really influential artist and song for me because it's an example of the idea that the bass player can just be a pillar and everything else can yeah. like be a maelstrom of, of chaos and energy around him and he can just be this core and lay it down and with confidence and it, again if it was missing it would be a disaster well let's listen to one of your tunes too like don't be bashful is there a song where you that you record that you really love the feel of a certain section or pocket or like a oh yeah sure. that magic carpet feeling yeah that i can think of a, a good example of that um there's a, a Beck song, probably the, one of the simplest things I've ever recorded, called End of the Day. It's from the Sea Change LP. And we did that song um, and live. Everything was recorded live. Um, there's a series of records that we did that way. Sea Change, Mutations, and Morning Phase. Recorded in the same studio with the same players, the same microphones, the same engineer. and um, And the same type of routine, which is you record the basic track during the day and then you do overdubs and mixing in the night. Do the whole song per one And it's day. done. Yeah. That's wow. the way mutations and, and part of Sea Change were done. Morning phase, less so. But That's that was that. the I ethos. I work on songs for like six months straight. So Same here. <laughs> oh, I, trust me. I'm, I'm the same way. But, yeah. I'm, but, but when I'm in that circumstance with Beck, people have a different sense of musical, musical responsibility, if you will. Everyone shows up. We learn the tune. And we throw it down, and everybody is doing the best listening that they've done in their life. And I think the results speak for themselves. So if you if you listen to that, check out the groove. I've seen the end of the day come too soon. Not a lot to say. Not a 
and the bass line is really not much going on. It's me playing an octave and sometimes playing the major seven. So the verse goes like this. That's about it. That's about it. Nothing else going on. And then the chorus. It's just really basic, right? So I took these opportunities in this bass line to throw in these occasional melodic figures. Like little That's nice. Little skippy, yeah. little percolating moments of, of thing. But but mainly my job is to just play that figure, keep it really chill. But the greatest part of that song is James Gadson. James Gadson is a drumming legend. He's uh, been doing this a really long time. He was Bill Withers' original drummer. He's wow. played on about 500 disco, soul, R&B He's on records. Bill Withers hits? Right? Yeah, everything. Oh, yeah, cool. you know that groove on Use Me Up? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's James. Yeah, that's one of the great tunes of yep. all time. <laughs> of all time, period. Full great, stop. Yeah. So, so James is one of these guys where you get in the room and he plays something and it lights everybody up. It inspires everyone to, to not only come up with something good to, to, to serve up that goes with it, but just to be really like locked. And that's it's cool that Beck hires him, you know? Yeah, like Beck had that idea early on. Because sometimes we picture Beck and we don't understand him. We, we know that he invented Silver Lake hipsterness and all that stuff. Or it's like, but he's going deep into the well for some true yeah, old man. school musician. That's that's really cool. Beck's always been good at that. He he's um he's arrived at a place in his career now and actually has been sitting in that place for a while, wherein he can he. He can be a chameleon, and he can be musically schizophrenic. And in fact, he he will let people down if he he's not doing that at this point. Right. So from album to album, for instance, or even within the scope of an album, he can be profound and with a, a lot of gravitas and heavy lyrics. And, and then he can be dancey and ludicrous and celebratory and like insane or he can be kind of punky and noisy or he can whatever there's so much range so for him to have a have a thought like oh yeah james gadson let's get him i heard he's in la still doing sessions let's get him and since then james has been on every beck album and i've hired james myself for things i've worked on and 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 brought him in in that way and he's still doing it. And I just did a session with him and he just, he killed it. Like I just did a, a thing with him and it was just like unbelievable. This record with Mike Patton. Wow. And, really? And Is that a solo album? What's Mike Patton doing? Can you talk about it? <laughs> no, no, no comment, man. All right, cool. No comment. Don't, don't ask me. I'd talk to my publicist. <laughs> no, but, but uh, anyway, James is like, wow. You know, he's the true G. And listen to that song. And you'll see what I mean. You'll see what I mean about how the drummer brought this thing and then everybody put on that hat, so to speak, and, and, and did it right with him. And it's one of those moments where it's not fancy, it's not hard, um, but I'm probably, that's one of the top five things I've ever done as a bass player.
grooving, did you immediately, like I am curious how, as I said, you started off as an inspired teenager or whatever and became a total pro. And uh, did you, or a lot of bass players start off on another instrument and end up on the bass? Did yeah. it grab you right away? or? Yeah, it grabbed me right, right away. I had a family friend who like said, hey, I've got a bass, bass guitar. You want to play around on this? And I was like, yeah, sick. Great. Let's do it. And of course, I'd already been turned on to things like Rush or whatever and been like, whoa, the bass guitar is insane. You know, and I had musical interest, but I never had an instrument. Right. So I'm 11. And this friend of the family says, here, check out this old bass. It's like this Japanese junker. And then MTV was invented. I, right place, right time. Here I am in 1981, 82, 83, 84, and like MTV's on on cable. I come home from school, turn on MTV, pick up the bass, and I'm jamming along with Duran Duran, Flock of Seagulls, and uh, Missing Persons, and yeah. U2, and Rush, and the Golden Age of Rock videos. Yeah, and 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 Buggles, and you know, um, Talking Heads, and whatever right and it became everything to me did you do a lot of high school bands and stuff yeah or? totally i mean it sounds like you met beck in high school or no i met beck i met beck um yeah, when we were 17 yeah high school age and yeah high school age i was out of school i had graduated early and he ironically had also like done the ged and like tested out early he had i think he'd been out of high school for a couple of years at that point and he was just this guy like arty guy he was doing a fanzine he was playing folk guitar and into punk and blues and like tom waits and protest singers and weird you know stuff i'd never heard of just you know he turned me on to so much music early on and you guys were right here in la or what part where were you yeah like like uh gosh where did he live i lived in glendale he lived in like koreatown which was real sketchy back then and he lived with his mom who was an artist and uh uh he was he was like yeah i'm learning how to play guitar and he had a four track was the first person i met with a four track right and uh he told me a few years ago that he found some four track tapes of him and I jamming on some songs from 1987, 88 when we were like teenagers still basically. And so, yeah, I met him then, but I had other bands going on, right? My interest in music was also different than his. He was turning me on to like things that were really like eclectic and bluesy and weird and like Captain Beefheart and Tom Waits and people like that and my interest was more in like you know alternative rock of the day or like you know gothy music or industrial music or you know uh, new wave or like whatever that, that, that's where my head was at and so I remember years later he said oh yeah I've got a record I'm putting out and it was a 12 inch of the song Loser and I'm like wow you're putting out a 12 inch how cool you know it's like a two song four song 12 inch or something I don't remember what it was was it the one that became a hit or is it, yeah. early? it was the actual yeah. same recording I was like, wow, man, you're really like taking off. I'm like, I didn't have anything like that. I didn't have anything to show for myself. And then he, it exploded. And then he was in Rolling Stone. He was on tour all over the world. His first album was out. It was insane. And then he, he called me one day out of the blue and he says, hey, do you want to come down and jam? I'm like, what? Jam? With you? Yeah, let's do it. And um, he and his drummer, Joey Warnker, the great Joey Warnker, who's been his drummer since and gone on to do many things. He's currently on tour with Roger Waters. Damn. And, I mean, he's done he, Adams for Peace, R.E.M., Smashing Pumpkins. Wow. Beck, obviously, uh, like me, hundreds of records as a session player. Great. 
great, great drummer. One of my, one of my absolute, probably my top two or three. Okay, so Joey and Beck invited me and a guitar player, which who was Smokey Hormel. Don't know if you know who Smokey Hormel is. Smokey played with Beck from that time, same as me, from 1996 onward, and also had incredible stints playing with Johnny Cash, doing all his last albums with Rick Rubin, wow. and and performing with him and um, Tom Waits. So Smokey, who's obviously still around as well, he and I basically didn't know this. We walked into this practice space in Silver Lake, and Joey and Beck were there. And they were like, let's play some songs. And they, he started laying down some like grooves from Beck songs. Beck would sing, and Joey would just play drums. And I was supposed to just cop like what the bass line was. So... Um, these are new songs? No, these are like Beck songs that already existed. And, and thankfully, I already knew what they were. And there was this song called, called Beer Can. And I remember that was probably the first song I ever played with Beck. And the bass line goes like this. It was in C sharp, and you, you bend the root. But it was so funky. It goes... And that's, that's from yeah. the first Beck album. And um, we were being auditioned. And we didn't know it. Oh, yeah. He never said audition. He never said he wanted us to, he was looking for new players for his band. Right. So we were in there and I'm playing beer can and Joey's playing the groove and, and Beck starts rapping and I evidently played it to his satisfaction. And he's yeah. like, dude, would you, do you want to come on the road? And I was like, what? And I'd done a bit, I'd done some touring up till then. I'd been on the road and been in bands and whatever, yeah. but not at the level that Beck was already at. What were the, what was the big step up as far as your touring life, as far as joining an artist on that level compared to what you were used to? No, that was it. It was like he had a tour bus, where like him and the and the, he had a road crew. I didn't have anything like that. I was in vans for years and years and years before that. I was in the, my band Medicine, and a couple other things where I'd never been on a tour bus before. And you know the some of the first gigs we ever did, like within a week of playing with him. I was playing a festival in France in front of 30,000 people and never had done anything like that before. Mind-blowing. It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, you got to have moments like that yourself. Oh, me personally? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember the first time I got in a bus band, pretty much the only time, a real true bus band, yeah. JGB, Jerry Garcia band yeah. guys Yeah. after Jerry was gone. After Jerry was gone, yeah. And right. showed up, showed up. The first gig was at Pine Knob Amphitheater. Pine Knob, I know it well. Like, wow, I've never played on a stage like this before, you know, <laughs> over in Detroit. You know? By Detroit, yeah. But I that's, remember that's, just that feeling. We'd be rolling down the road, and I was like, we're in a bus that music is paying for. This guy up here driving us, he's supporting us. His job is to make us get from it this city to the next so we can play more music like it i could it was a weird feeling you'd heard about it but yeah. you could never quite fathom it until you were in that position yourself right yeah. crazy i know and 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 beck basically just kept taking off after that because that was the odelay album that i was involved in f yeah. helping him finish but also touring it you and played on some of the tracks yes but i don't i i I don't think that any of the stuff that I played on made the album. It definitely made like B-sides and I think right. I came in right at the end like when he was finishing it, but I'd played on some stuff and then we were also rehearsing to go do the tour, right? That was a he was really huge by that time that. Yeah, album. it was, it was a two and a half year tour. 
Wow. And, you know, there was Grammys, there was MTV Awards, there was all the big festivals, there was, you know, Radio City Music Hall, there was Brixton Academy in London, there was, you know, a, a yeah. big show at Santa Monica Civic here in LA. There was, like, I mean, it was like huge, you know? And so it was a massive step up for me. Man, once you get a taste of that bus life, woo. Yeah. Although sometimes you end up not getting hotel rooms. <laughs> Oh, of course. We never had hotel rooms. I know. And when like, we did, we'd share rooms with a few people. The first year with but. JGB, we had the bus and the hotel rooms. And <sighs> then, because they didn't really understand, I don't think. And then the main guy figured out, you know what? This is, I think we can just get shower rooms. Yeah, shower rooms. And <laughs> Totally. You know, it was funny that way. but Yeah. I remember being on tour with Air in, in 98. And that was, by the way, during some breaks. Uh, when Beck was like doing some writing, that's nice. when I I did air for nice instance. Timing. Yeah, it actually worked out great. But they had never been on the road before, and they had the first thing they ever did was get on a tour bus, and and the whole concept of like getting to a venue and the only shower you're going to get that day is it backstage of the venue and their shitty shower like that's like super gross and having <laughs> then yeah. getting their heads around that was was a thing you know and I have some funny memories of of everyone trying to adapt to that but it was it was um it's cool yeah. to watch people enjoy and not enjoy those big moments of change that happen in in a music career is there yeah. another beck song you played on that we could uh, fly in here to man like? i mean that th- there is one that i like um but i like it for the opposite reason of describing that song end of the day end of the day is an exercise in simplicity and groove and and a very relaxed vibe and a kind of a darkness right and then in in terms of beck's career you got a real diametrically opposed set of material from that from the sea change album and end of the day or songs like end of the day or songs like um well, there's anything on that record, really. You've got uh, the song Sex Laws from Midnight Vultures. And Sex Laws is basically like this boogaloo, you know, P-Funk, JB's, Soul Review situation meets like French pop, I'd say. Basically, it's psycho. Everything's playing at once. And Beck wanted a bass line that was hyperactive and essentially kind of walked all over the song. And so I came up with a bass line. And so the chords are... That's the guitar. It's kind of exactly doing like a Steve Cropper thing, exactly. And it's pretty fast. It's even faster than that. So the bass line goes like this. Those two chords only? No, then the, the, the turnaround at the end, uh, the four bars is A major to G flat major. Right. So the bass line goes like this. So you got a great pocket, man. Thanks. But basically the idea with that line was he wanted it to be as busy as it could be. And he was also kind of like, how How often do bass players get asked that (laughs) play busy as possible? 2% of the time. Yes. So it's fun when it gets asked, right? You go like, Oh yeah. Going to get my rocks off here for a minute. So those, so it's like, he's like, okay, I got these soul changes, but I want it to, I want a really insane bass, but I also want to inflect it with something kind of country. So that's where that turnaround comes in. Yeah. 
That's like nice. this me doing some country riffage in yeah. there. So when you put it all together at tempo, one, two, three. So that's the verse, nice. right? Then the, yeah. the chorus, I won't even throw the changes right, at you, right. but it's insane. <laughs> but the chorus is like full boogaloo soul activity on the bass. Like... to the verse so like too many chords lots of opportunity to get lost in all those chords but essentially he wanted me to just walk all over the song so if you if you play an excerpt of that i think people get the idea like oh yeah the bass is kind of nuts that's that's something i had a lot of fun with like a different side of beck for instance you know it's just like there's different sides of me you know and and him and i coming up together i i i have to say was a real asset for me because having a lot of musical range and freedom with the main artist you play with lets you just dip your toes in more stuff as your life goes on as and as your career expands it, it gives you kind of the the okay the go-ahead to like well i've got 20 years worth of time with beck over 11 albums doing this I'll just continue that ethos right on into what I'm doing. For instance, when I produce, I'm trying not to be limited to the kind of band I work with, the kind of artists I work with. In fact, I'll just frankly get bored if I do the same thing. Right. Well, I, a boundless universe, and you get to explore it with your main live gig. Sure. And also as a producer. Yeah, and that's very lucky. And I don't, I don't take it for granted. I, I realize that that is a that is a privileged position to be in. Yeah. It's not normal, it's and. True. To, to have range and to exploit the range that you've learned over time is is very fortunate and I but but now that I have had that as an as a, an asset for myself I won't have it any other way Sometimes so I need I need to be able to jump around you know what I mean I need right. I need all that I, yeah, I like just like you you I mean you're you got to feel like well I'm in the studio but I can only do that for so long. I got to go play a gig. I'm always amazed at how life throws you some of the coolest stuff ever. Like when you might get a gig that you never thought of. Like I started playing some West African high life when I was 20 years <gasps> Whoa, old. I never would have. Yes. It's just a buddy of mine called me. He's like, man, I'm sick of doing this gig. I've been doing it for seven years. You want to try out for this band? I'm like, and it was great band. Oh, my and God. A lot of 145 stuff. But just, Yeah, 145. You know, but but the, that... Dig all this stuff, you know? Oh my god, that's Whereas beautiful. You'd be, be like, oh, it's kind of really great drum talking drum. Like, I never would have been thought I'd be playing with a talking drum master from Nigeria. Really? And it's but it's mixed with the electric bass and guitars and <sighs> horns and stuff. And yeah, you never know. You learn so much when when different musical situations throw themselves at you. Yeah, but you also become addicted to it. It's almost like you can't then go back and be in a in the in the musical equivalent of a cubicle. Right. Once you once you have a taste yeah. of of 
a broad horizon that really doesn't have limits, which frankly, everybody is entitled to. It's hard to then go back to, well, I'm really only good at this and I'm just going to stick with this or, or either self-imposed or because maybe that's the only gig you have for a while. And you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, especially when you run into talented folks who deserve that chance to just explore so much, you know, man, it's crazy how much you've done now. How did you learn to produce that? I read somewhere that Mm. you've got a internship as a, essentially a janitor or something at Cherokee. Yeah. That's way before I learned how to produce. Well, how did you you pick up in the studio as you're you're sneaking into this? You're basically sneaking into this pro studio. That's right. Well, well, I was around pro studio since I was 17. My first job out of high school was, as you say, being a janitor at Cherokee studios and watching the famous Rob brothers who own the place produce like, you know, there's a Kiss album going on there at the time. There was like Lou Reed was in there recording. There's all kinds of other weird like metal stuff happening. And like, uh, uh, man, Jimmy Page rolled through there at one point, all kinds of people. And I was just cleaning toilets. I was sweeping cocaine off the console. <laughs> I was I was doing whatever, you know. Paying your dues. I was paying my dues. That's, by the way, the same time that I met Beck, that era. Right. Um, and uh, so... I quickly decided, oh, this is my environment. I'm in recording studios. This is where I'll always be. Now, I'm not always going to clean the toilets. I mean, I, hey, I clean the toilet now at my studio. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, there's more for me, but this is my environment. And I became uh, fascinated with it from the early on, right? And um, producing came, though, specifically out of the idea that as a bass player on a session, a couple of sessions a day, several days per week, I'm working as a bass player. And at a certain point in time, all the time watching what's going on behind the glass mm-hmm. is filtering in by osmosis and time and experience. And I'm starting to get a sense that, well, that position isn't something unattainable. It's not something that I didn't go to school for so I can't do it's not something that's rarefied and exclusive and elite in fact it's something that by force of will I'll bet I could do so I started saying I was a producer and it wasn't really like fake it till you make it that wasn't really my mindset it was more just well I think I have all the tools to start to start and so I produced like this really cool indie band from LA called Division Day. Did a great record with them that I'm still proud of. I'll be that a That's one of the first, the first full length I ever produced as strictly the producer, right? Wow. And then from there, like I had a buddy, you know, you ever heard of the band called Failure? Yeah. Okay. So Ken Andrews from Failure, the singer guitarist was doing a solo album called Secrets of the Lost Satellite and he was recording it himself. And I've been a friend of Ken's for a long time. We kind of came up together. One of my early bands and his were in the same rehearsal studio and I knew them forever. And Ken hit me up and he said, I'm at this point in the album where I just feel like I need another head in the room to offer other things that maybe I'm not thinking of. And so I co-produced with him and another fellow that we're friends with, this guy, um, 
Jordan from this Canadian band Blinker the Star, and the three of us co-produced Ken's solo album called Secrets of the Lost Satellite. And um, you can check out a song from there called Stand By. This is a good one to play. A song called Allergic. Cool. And that's that's um, one of the first times I started to put together like what kind of atmosphere I would like to incorporate into rock music. And so that's a, an early um, example of stuff I worked on as a producer. Two albums with those guys. That's one song. I think it's Told You So. Did you produce that song? Produced and played bass. That's that's a really cool... I mean, it's rock, but it's also funk and yeah, the way it fits together. Yeah, there's a there's a definite and distinct Talking Heads nod in that song and in, in in a few other songs on that album, particularly the Talking Heads album Remain in Light, which is in my top five. And that album, Told You So, is, is a song from the Paramore album called After Laughter. And the idea with that album was to record as a band without a lot of fanfare and a lot of trickery and a lot of production values. It was more about guitar, bass, drums, vocals, live, as much as we could get, keyboards later, and percussion. And there you have it. And Told You So was is a, is a pretty cool example of all those things being married together. live sound but then everybody wants to you know make it sound fresh and modern so you got the traditional thing of a band playing in the room yeah together but then what do you do and to, to make it sound new from there i don't know I, I don't think about new or old or i don't think about i'm not on trend i'm not i don't know what's on the radio i, I mean like I, in a pure I, way how, how, we're all trying to make it just the only barometer I have for something sounding fresh is some shit that you've thrown at the wall and it sticks and it's done so without a lot of time being spent thinking about it. That's the measure for me. So if you look at a song like that, it's just more about like, well, what's some cool like, there's like all these guitar figures that are sort of slides or, or quick guitar overdubs where they only echo one little tiny phrase over a bar and then they're gone but but they have a whole new sound and they make a weird little drama a little flourish that's like the stuff that makes that and 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 then there's the marimba that's live marimba that's like the real thing you know double right. guitar For me, that's probably the freshest part of the song. I was going to say, you know, that's what I would that, describe as a yeah. fresh layer. And then the bass line is, is me, again, trying to wear that Tina hat. Simple, singable, basic, you know. 
Man, I'm sold on flat wounds now. <laughs> I know. Triplet figure, like yeah. nothing fancy. It's just groove, right? There's nothing going on that, no, that anyone can't play. So there's a certain parts where it's Damn. like... There's all these cool slides, Taylor. Like there's like yep. single note stuff too. A lot of really single cool. note stuff. Taylor York is a master at that. At, these, at taking a simple part and making it sound really uh, electrified and exciting and frankly weird, right? And he, he'll do something like... Um, dun, dun, so I'm playing along. And then he'll go, and he'll do like this slide <laughs> on a D minor chord with the craziest sound. He throws yeah. a bunch of pedals on the floor, and within 20 seconds, he's got this thing mocked up that's like so. It's like it's like a Jackson Pollock painting. It's like he's right. taken a can of blue neon paint yeah. and just gone and thrown it all against the wall against something that I'm doing. has it all mocked up in his mind he's got like i got this i got this i'm gonna try the single note thing like you're talking about taylor york you gotta have him on your show in fact i insist you have him on your show because he's he's not only a brilliant producer he co-produced that album with me he's one of the finest guitar players i've ever worked with and innovative beyond compare such That's an innovator a lot right there i'm i'm telling you you know what i'm saying it's like taylor is uh is one of these people that's going to be around for a long time doing amazing things maybe we could listen to some of your other tracks i think you produced m83 go with yeah. steve Vai's on that one and yep, he's that's been steve on this Vi. podcast before oh steve has great excellent so that's a totally different kind of vibe on that track yeah, so Go is like this really like very dark ethereal verses with the choruses acting as an explosion of, you know, hands in the air celebratory vibes, right? And Anthony Gonzalez, the 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 main musical mind of M83 and myself, we, he and I do the albums together. Um Anthony Gonzalez always knew there was going to be a solo, right? Like right. a legit solo. Someone's got to play a solo. And we thought, well, why don't we get a master soloist, like a real motherfucker? And we thought, Steve Vai. And Anthony sort of laughed it off, like, oh, Steve Vai is never going to. And I said, I know plenty of people that know him. I could, I could get Steve Vai on the phone in a day. And he's, he just thought I was bragging. But in fact, I got Steve Vai on the phone within a day, and Steve Vai was down. And, and he, how was, do you... he was like, oh, yeah, I mean, three sounds great. That's be awesome to put a solo on that. Let's do it. Sent him the track. He loved it. And then he gave me three one-take solos. Yeah, he's a nut. And he's I comped guy it together. A beautiful home studio. You guys, you oh, guys my should God. stop by there. Yeah, he was sending me photos. I couldn't go there because we were under a time deadline doing other things. But he was sending me photos of the guitar setup that he used to get this. And it was this really innovative, like, obviously, you're familiar with, um, like, a wet-dry-wet scenario. Oh, yeah. And all that, but also crazy multi-mic, direct, 
near, far, like DIs, very, very complex, right? But he has it down like a blueprint. So did he send you just a stereo mix of all that or did you? Yes, I didn't, I didn't, he said, look, I can break all this out for you, but it's like 20 tracks. And I said, okay, send me, send me like four tracks per take. Something simple, right? like room mics and close mics. So he did it, he sent it, and I was just like, my God, this is killer. And I comped it together in 10 minutes and we had our solo and no edits by the way just comping in other words i just basically chose a phrase that i wanted from take one the body of take two and a phrase at the end from maybe take three or back to take one i don't know but done that's it boom and he's just like you know his mandate was like i want full steve vi don't don't be don't don't do a minimal steve vi don't do like don't do like an art like Steve Vai through an arty filter like Bill Laswell producing the the PIL album, for instance. Right. Like let's put that aside for a minute. Although that was why we called you. We called you because of your work on on album, because your guitar playing on that on that album called album is legendary at this point, right? And that's him and Ginger Baker and Bill Laswell, and it's like incredible, right? And we thought let's get some of that but let's not do that let's get like you know full steve vi guitar hero mode steve vi and he was like all right if you want that i'm gonna give it to you i was like yes we want it and he did it check it out that too often nowadays i don't know it's just what we felt it's just like an in, it was an impulse what, what a, we just were going by impulse we're just going by whim like oh now as we all know eddie van halen i think did not get paid a dime for the beat it solo but he didn't ask for a dime he with, opted out of getting paid he said no i'm cool i'll just bang this out and he banged it out in no time you know the story i mean that's about as much as i know yeah and i get paid or how does that oh work? yeah i got paid of course i we felt like it would be a an honor and a privilege to pay him a very healthy fee. I mean, he was, you know, he's making the song and it was, he was like, he crushed it, you know? And, and, and it, he's so lyrical. That's the thing about it. Like I can think about that song right now. This goes back to some stuff we were talking about earlier. I can think back to that song now and I can sing his solo. Like I know it verbatim, not because I spent 40 hours working on the song until it was mixed after he gave me that part, but because it's great yeah it's amazing it can be singable when it's so full of craziness on top of that like it's crazy wild ass guitar hero yeah times like, like infinity old school. yeah exactly i mean you know but yet still as lyrical a master at work you know and and that was a fun idea and it became kind of a gimmick like people in interviews asking me about that album that m83 album junk They'd, they'd of course bring up the the Steve I guitar solo sort of like nudge nudge wink wink and I'm like there's no nudge nudge and wink wink that is there's nothing ironic there 
that's right. that's pure intention like badassery that's what we wanted we want like flamethrowers and that's what we got and uh, um i don't care if, if people think it's like a you know a square peg in a round hole i think it's amazing. fucking amazing i do too now how does someone hire you like well, first of all how do you choose your gigs in terms of production nowadays i'm sure you more and more often get to pick and choose a little bit but then again what if somebody wanted to pursue you is it possible to i mean obviously if someone said hey man here's two million dollars to produce my granddaughter's album maybe that could work but generally how, how does the process go if someone wanted to work with you basically they just find my manager jeff Costello's cast management and they hit him up and they say we have something we want justin to hear so just so you know the whole concept of producers being up in some ivory tower like having hit records and then being unattainable and you know sort of floating on air it's that's an old that's old school that's an old mindset and old what i'm getting at is like the days of like a roy thomas baker or whomever showing up in the with the gold rolls at you know at at capitol studios and 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 that's just over man and it's been over for so long now that it's more just like historical anecdotes and the only reality now is that anyone of my peers who do what I do have to be adaptable to anything. And part of that includes sometimes working for nothing. Now, I can't work for nothing much, but if I love something and it needs development and I feel like helping it would be, it, it has other values that are more of, of just a musical nature or something that I maybe it's something I just feel has to get heard and I have to put my hands in it so that it sees the light of day. Everyone in my position has done gigs like that where they just take something on because they, they just feel a sense of obligation to for themselves, for the artist. They just have to. It's like a compulsion you can't resist. And then there's gigs where you do them and they're brilliant gigs, but you also get paid a healthy amount of money. And then there's gigs that are brilliant, but you get paid only a little bit of money. And then sometimes, and I've been guilty of this too, there's gigs that you take for reasons that are not um, always the most pure or noble, like you do it for a favor, or you do it because you think the chairman of that record company is going to hire you for the next thing if you do the album for that. And I, I'd, I've done this once, okay. and I'm not going to name the artist, right? but I did an album that I really hated making profoundly and i did it because he asked me to the chairman of the record label and it was a total drag and i got paid a lot of money and the album came out okay and i hated it and what did i learn i learned the power of no the power of figuring out what your parameters are and sticking to them and sure now do i say now uh, do i say no more than yes of course i say no more than yes not out of being snooty or elite or like a snob i i just like i have to feel something man i have to like have an investment that goes beyond i just don't have that much time in the world anymore i'm not going to be on this earth doing at least doing producing forever so if i do four five six albums a year if that i better make them count so I learned that early and I figured it out that <laughs> I'm not doing anybody any favors by saying yes to a gig that I'm not like completely sure about in every way. 
It's great to be able to turn down stuff. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't. I have to confess that sometimes, like, m- like maybe the royalty stream is not that happening this year, and then you know someone offers me a gig and I say no, and I'm not going to pretend like that. That doesn't hurt, and financially it's a little sketchy. I have two kids in school that I pay for, and a car and a house with a mortgage and a home studio, and. I'm, you know, I'm not flying on jets. I'm not, I don't have a vacation home. I don't like spend money frivolously. And so I have to be economical and thoughtful about everything, just like anybody does who's a freelancer. So the the, the thing is though, is that at this day and age, when the music business is so slimmed down and there's so much competition for everybody doing the same gigs, just taking the gig because it's offered to you still doesn't make sense, even in that climate. It still doesn't make sense. You still have to have some kind of discretion, man. You have to have a filter where you go, I'm actually not right for it. I, I don't care if I'm going to make a half a million dollars. I'm not, I'm not the guy. Well, it keeps you closer to what you are right for. And hopefully. on the path. Yeah. Hopefully. So I'm trying to just pick things I love. I don't know. That's a cliche, but it's really true for me. And if I take something I don't love... I'm doing nobody any favors, man, especially myself. So there's only one album that I felt like I went off the path. And every other album I've done, I felt like that was that was worthwhile. Not just for career, but for the personal interaction, for the musical satisfaction, for the things, that stuff that actually matters more than anything else. Really, you know? Awesome. Thanks so much for uh, yeah, sitting pleasure. down today and oh having my. me in your beautiful studio. This is a whole Glad other to have topic. You. <laughs> I just I just built this place. Oh, and it's only been online for about five months. And um, I'm still fine-tuning, but it's pretty much done now, and everything works. I'm in this weird position where every piece of gear in the studio works at the same time, which is this rare, weird spot to be in. Harmonic convergence. Harmonic convergence, where, like, you know... I'll have like an old compressor or something and it's going to go out in a week or like that mic pre will die or like this AMS will die. But right now everything works and I'm freaking out. This might out. be crazy, but I, I, when the second I walked in here, I felt like everything worked in here. <laughs> I swear. Well, then you're a, you're a, you're an observant uh, spirit, you know? I love that controller. What is that controller for your uh, Pro Tools or Logic or whatever you yeah, use? Yeah, it's an Avid S3. It's basically just 16 faders, and it allows me to pretend like I'm at a console and also write automation really quickly. So I can just press two buttons. I can go to vocal ride, vocal ride, whatever, effects ride, like all that kind of stuff, and just bang it out really fast. So much nicer than using the mouse. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to use a mouse less, you know, and, and I'm also getting a little console in here, so that's going to change as well. But for now, this has been great. This is totally oh, yeah. cool, you know? We definitely don't have time to talk about all the amazing gear that I'm looking at, but... There's a lot of it, and you got some killer basses up on the wall there. One last question: What is that Fender P bass right there? That's a Fender P bass. What year is that sucker? <laughs> That's a 1966 Fender P bass in sunburst with rosewood board and lots of wear. That's and yeah. it was procured from uh, a woman who was selling uh, the possessions of a, of a gentleman who was a, an old blues musician from the South, and that was a bass that he bought new back in the day. And he owned it until, I'd say, the late 90s. And then he passed, and his wife was selling his estate, and I, I happened to be the guy who was on the receiving end of that and able to buy it. And, That's uh, beautiful. There's a whole musical lifetime in there. In I, yeah, man. Yeah. I haven't, I've, yeah, I don't know. I've, 
I'm certain things you'll never sell. And that's one of those things. You just never, it's always going to be with you. That bass is real special to me. Beautiful. You know? Well, can yeah. I close this out on a, one of your tunes that you produced? Another one? What, what's one more thing you like to play for the people? Hmm. There's this band I produced last year called Wolf Alice. They're English. And they're like a band that is carrying the torch of straight-up guitar music. And um, I'm really proud of, of helping them achieve something that I think is really good and will continue to be referred to as their career expands. And they're just brilliant, man. And there's this crazy song that we did called visions of a life which is the the title of the album also ironically and it's a it's a three-part song that was recorded as three different pieces and then edited together and it's and and then eventually we re-recorded it i think then just as one piece of music and it's very very long and it's super proggy and super intricate and weird it basically sounds like if you took yes and you mixed it with like old yes like close to the edge like you know legit proggy yes mixed with super aggressive british indie rock and we had a lot of fun putting it together and it's it's a it's a, an example of something that i think is like a guitar band that can push the boundaries of what it means to be a guitar band and not and not be such traditionalists with it you know cool yeah so you can play an excerpt of that like, yeah. yeah thanks again jmj yeah man Justin, whoever you are, uh, whoever I am, Batman, I who I am. Sometimes <laughs> I don't know, but uh, right place at right time, guy. I don't know.